Hello, listeners, and welcome to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast. I'm Hendel Leva, Race Forward's manager of podcasts and audio initiatives, and I'll be introducing today's episode, pushing back against the rise of Christian nationalism through faith. Our episode today will be hosted by the brilliant and charismatic Dr. Charlene Sinclair, who is Race Forward's chief of staff and part of the team that has now relaunched Color Lines as a multimedia platform for conversations on race, power, and democracy. Strongly influenced by the path-breaking thought of the late James H. Cohn, Charlene helps to fashion strategies that embrace a liberationist approach to faith and spirituality in the context of popular struggles for racial and economic justice. As part of her career trajectory, Charlene coordinated the Interfaith Organizing Initiative and founded the Center for Race, Religion, and Economic Democracy to engage organizing and faith communities in transformative strategic organizing inquiry, analysis, and practices designed to take seriously and combat the ideological role of race and religion. Dr. Sinclair received her PhD in social ethics from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Our guest today is the revered Dr. Aubrey Hendricks, a lifelong social activist who is one of the foremost commentators on the intersection of religion and political economy in America. He is the most widely read and perhaps the most influential African-American biblical scholar writing today. His recent book, Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith, has garnered wide acclaim. A former Wall Street investment executive and past president of Payne Theological Seminary, the oldest African-American theological seminary in the United States, he is currently a visiting scholar at Columbia University in the Department of Religion and the Department of African-American and African Diasporic Studies. An ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Dr. Hendricks holds the Master of Divinity with academic honors from Princeton Theological Seminary and both the MA and PhD in Religions of Late Antiquity from Princeton University. Here is their conversation. Welcome, Aubrey, to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Charlene. Always so good to talk with you. Being someone that has followed all of your work and read just about everything you've written, I am so excited to talk to you, especially in your last book where you wrote Christians Against Christianity, when you really talked about yourself as a biblical scholar, which I think is so important and so critical in this moment that we're in. So the first thing that I would love to talk about, so why do you think it would be important for progressives to engage spirituality and religion in particular in this political moment? That's, that's a very important question because religion is the greatest terrain of political contestation in America today. And the reason why the uh, religious right is winning, and they are winning the discursive war, is because they speak in the frame of America. And the discursive frame of America is religion, let's face it. I mean, even atheists speak in religious terms. We on the progressive side, we have to start speaking within the frame. It's not enough to work to love your neighbor as yourself in America. You must come right out and talk about it and let people know that's what you're, uh, what you're talking about. We also have to speak from the Bible 
because the Bible is the urtext of America. And we on the left don't do that well at all. And it's, it's, it's a shame because philosophically, progressive policies, they reflect the whole notion of love your neighbor as yourself so much better than they do on the right. I appreciate that so much because in the progressive movement, we talk about narrative and narrative change and culture and religion and the Bible are deep cultural tools within society, but we don't engage them at all. You know, when you talk about love your neighbor as yourself and you talk about it being the urtex, I don't think that people recognize that when we hear progressive policy, if we're not explicit about the discourse that they understand, that they don't hear it in ways that may drive them and move them forward. And so I would love for you to um, to unpack that a little bit more with me, ways in which we could hear the text if we were to engage it. One thing that's so clear and so tragic is that most Christians don't have a sense of what the core of the gospel is. The core of the gospel is what Jesus said. And in social terms, the core of the gospel is, he said, the greatest commandment on the social level, horizontal level, is love your neighbor as yourself, which means that we must not only want for our neighbors the same freedom, the same liberation, the same resources, the same health and wholeness for our neighbors and their loved ones as we want for our own, but it also means that because we would struggle for our own loved ones to have the best, that we have a responsibility to struggle for our neighbors to have the best, which means that we must struggle for the common good. What is missed is that what Jesus gives us as the primary mode of judgment, how we treat people, whether we're trying to make sure that folks have enough food to eat, whether they have decent lives. This is the core of the gospel. Love your neighbor as yourself and that we are judged by how we treat others. And if we could inculcate that, if we could get society to understand that, then it would be a whole nother kind of discourse. We'd have a much clearer standard for how to judge our actions and to judge the actions of others with regard to the Christian narrative. So we would be able to say that this policy is just not Christian, is not consistent with the core of the gospel, and thus and so and so. Does that make sense? I want to push us even a little bit further because, you know, for many who are on the progressive left, the idea of religion and spirituality feels fuzzy. To me, it has two different perspectives, right? One is that it's sort of emotional and fuzzy. And on the other hand, it's the thing that harms people because the only engagement that they have with it is the engagement that the right has taken up. When you think about the historical relationship of religion to Blackness against Black people, not necessarily that which has been taken up by Black people. You know, it's been used as a weapon. It's been completely weaponized. So how do we recapture that towards our end? You know, in your latest book, as well as all of your other writings, you talk about the discipline of religious study, of biblical study, and the fact that it is not a fuzzy emotional endeavor, although it has emotion attached to it. What we must understand is that the Bible is so complex and that there's so many pitfalls in it and that there's so much misinformation about the Bible and it has been weaponized so much that we have a responsibility if we take this gospel seriously to try to get beneath all these layers so we can get to what's really there. And 
Um, what's really there is a radicality that is freeing, that's liberating, that has spiritual depth. But the church seems to have run on emotion, as you say. And emotions, are, I don't know if it, I'd put in motion, passion is what's important, not emotional catharsis. The role of faith for Black people has been so integral to our very existence. And what can we learn from that to get at these questions around fighting back? Afro-Christianity is so different from traditional American Christianity in that first, Afro-Christianity has never been about oppressing anyone or marginalizing anyone or anything like that, right? What it gave to our people, even though religion was presented as a way to control us, the way we transformed it is that we got such spiritual strength from it. And so our ability to resist and maintain our humanity in whatever sense of propriety we were able to maintain under heinous conditions, that was predicated on real spirituality, not just on emotionalism, but there had to be a connection with the divine that gave us the power to see ourselves in a different way. Well, today, and when I talk about the church, my critique is of the pulpit, not the pew. Martin Luther King had it right in terms of revolution of values. William Barber has has it right. So what I'm suggesting is that we have to be informed, let's say, by Luke 4, beginning with uh, the first verse. And so interesting, at, when Jesus was baptized into his messiahship in Luke, he didn't run out and become a, try to become a bishop immediately. He didn't run out to try to be a preacher and, and have everybody throwing money at him. Or He went off to spiritually prepare himself, right? He engaged in spiritual ministrations of meditation and contemplation and solitude and, and thirst and hunger. And only after he engaged in that the spiritual ministrations to get himself, to strengthen himself, and that's what the narrative talks about, how he, he learned discipline, only then did he stand up and say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because anointed me to preach good news to the poor and liberation to the oppressed. So if we would go back and look at, at the history of our people and their religion and their spirituality, our movement today would be so much stronger. And also, you know, capitalism has so much to do with the denigration of the faith for us. But that's another story. It does. and But, you know, I don't want to let go of the, the capitalism piece because, you know, I'm not sure it's another story, you know, it, because it's so central to this story. One of the things that I have appreciated so much uh, from the very first reading that I've ever done of your work, and I tell this to everyone, was guerrilla exegesis. And what you're talking about right now is how do we become guerrilla exegetes? How do we wrestle the biblical text, wrestle back the notion of a social revolution that's grounded in what Jesus is commanding us to do? How do we wrestle with society in such a way that it is towards love of our neighbor? Mm, such a good point. Well, in order to gauge a problem, you have to, you're right, you got to understand the problem, understanding of the political economy or what a political economy is. Capitalism is understood as being natural, or as Billy Graham said, it's, it's Christian. One of the strengths of Martin Luther King is that from an early age, he really understood how destructive capitalism was. He came to understand the uh, exploitation. He came to see it as anti-gospel. He was able to proceed in a way that reflected that. We have to, in our settings, we have to, and that's what I try to do in my work, we have to inform our people or at least pique their interest 
at least let them know that there is something really wrong with this political economy. Let them know that capitalism is not Christian. And not only that, I mean, it's not normative because we created mercantilism, then we created capitalism, and human beings will create something else. But until folk have any sense of a vision, a socialist ethos, in that it's about the health of the of the society. And these are the kinds of things I think we have to do if we're going to make any inroads at all against this, what I call an evil onslaught against our people, against the, the whole society by a cadre of folk who think that they have a right to rule us in God's name when they're really trying to rule us in terms of their own interests and desires. You know, we keep hearing that there's a rise of authoritarianism, that the capitalism is normative and we, you know, all we can do is maybe have a good, softer, kinder capitalism. And in addition to that, we're seeing with this rise of authoritarianism, people even questioning the value of democracy. So if I were to hear you, I would say that all of these things are antithetical to being a Christian. And yet, the vast majority of Christian nationalists are doing this and moving this agenda in the name of the God they believe they serve. And so how, how do we square this? You talked about the communal ethos, but how do we square this? I mean, it's part of our movements, I think, failing is that we don't understand that we're fighting their belief in God. You're not just fighting a policy prescriptive. We don't have a choice if we're going to survive. I've tried to do that with Christians Against Christianity to speak to their to the basic fallacies, biblical fallacies that fuel their ideology. I think one thing we have to help folks understand that Christian nationalism is an ideology of, of, of privilege, but also of oppression, and that it's an ideology, ideology that uses religion, right? Because they say, they come out, and I pointed out in my book, they come out and say they want to dominate American society. And we have to help people understand that. And I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Some years ago, I did the annotated commentary in the Gospel of John in one of the editions of the uh, Oxford annotated Bible. I took it to show to uh, one of my aunts, no matter how grown you get, you know, your elders are still your elders. And so I went to her and, and Aunt Janie, I just want to show you this. I was able, you know, to do this. You got to remember, I was born in Farmville, Virginia. My folk are all country folks. So, you know, this was a big deal. It was a big deal anyway, but, you know, I thought it was a, they'd be really proud. I came to show her. I said, look, Aunt, Aunt Janie, this is what I was able to do. And, and I was asked to write this commentary in the Gospel of John out of so many biblical scholars. First time a Black biblical scholar had done this for the Oxford Bible. And I showed it to her, all beaming with pride. And she said, oh, that's nice. But I like Jerry Falwell's Bible better. She didn't mean any harm, but, you know, white supremacy, she didn't understand how deeply imbued with white supremacy her Christianity is. So this is what we're fighting, right? And and we have to really push back against it as, as best we can. Also want to tell you a real quick story. When I was a seminary, we think we know better than everybody in the church. We know more because we I was asked to preach in the Amy Church at the eight o'clock young people service. So I was going to come, I was going to say something. So I was going to, I had a sermon that was called the political economy of the, of the Lord's Prayer. And that was, I was going to come in and wow, man. And I got there for the service and it turns out it was the old people's service. Oh Lord. So I was an experienced preacher. All I could do was preach what I had. And the folk, you know, 
People in the black church are so wonderful. Afterward, oh, that was a nice um talk you gave there, uh, Reverend. Alan. This elder coming up the aisle, this old black woman on a walker struggling up the aisle, frowning like crazy. I'm like, oh, damn, I'm in trouble now. And she took forever, it seemed like, to get to me. Finally, she got to me. And I'm, I'm at this point, I'm shook. And she says, Reverend. And I'm like, you know, everybody's Reverend who preach in black church. Reverend. I said, yes, ma'am. I always know there was something wrong with what they was teaching us. Realize at that point, the people are ready for so much more. Our people are ready for this if we would just go ahead and people can understand what capitalism is. They can understand how wrong it is. They can understand why Martin Luther King genuflected toward democratic socialism if we explain it to them. But preachers are taking the easy way out by not doing their homework. They're taking the easy way out by not pushing their people. And to the extent that that continues, the other side will continue to get more momentum and we are in trouble. I shudder to think what my five-year-old great-granddaughter's life might look like 20 years from now if this doesn't stop. And we have to stop it. And our folk don't realize what a dangerous moment this is. It's so scary. It really, really concerns me. What I want to do is refer to a couple of pieces of your work. I referred to the guerrilla exegesis piece earlier. Some of the ways in which you've actually pushed me around thinking about these pieces that I've used, because I want people to hear how it's possible. Just a couple of things anchoring first in your Politics of Jesus book, which is for many progressive Christians, progressive Black Christians and progressive Christians writ large, is a companion to our Bible study. In particular, there are two pieces, but I'm going to focus on your piece around the Lord's Prayer because you referenced it a bit earlier. And whenever I talk about how you've articulated that and then talk to people about how we stepped away from the articulation and have actually created a more quietist engagement with the Lord's Prayer, they're stunned. They just sit. And so wanting to you to talk a little bit about how you did that interpretation and why, so that folks could get an example of, of what you're talking about when you talk about the need for us to really engage, wrestle with discipline. Well, you know, one thing about the Lord's Prayer, I mean, even though it's so widely used, we learned that first uh, with the 23rd Psalm, right? I learned that in Sunday school. Problem with it, though, is that it's not given context, right? It also points to, to the problem with having faith that's not informed by understanding the history and the setting of the Bible. But because I had a sense of the context, I could see that the Lord's Prayer was really one of the most you know, radical proclamations. It begins with um, our, our Father. I mean, that's really interesting because it's not particularistic. It's not particular to Judaism or anything like that. But when you get into your kingdom come, your will be done, you know, folk don't realize that that is a seditious proclamation. You're telling folk to pray for Caesar's kingdom to be replaced by God's kingdom of justice and not only to pray for it, 
but to use your spiritual ministrations and whatever to bring this. This, I mean, and then talk about bring God's law to replace Caesar's law. This is anti-imperialism. This is sedition. This will get you crucified. And even when he talks about forgive our debts, it's because folk either do not have an understanding of the historical setting or do not, or they do have one, but don't want others to have it. They translate this as forgive our debts. When you translate it, it really says, a few of me says, release. And Ophelimata is financial debts. Release our financial debts. It's talking about, Jesus is saying, look, we, he's speaking about the terrible debt situation that has people crushed and all that. It, the Lord's Prayer is talking about economic freedom. It begins with talking about political freedom with God's kingdom come. It talks about economic freedom. It also talks about the importance of rejecting a role in these oppressive systems when it says release our, our debts as we've released others. In other words, as we've stepped outside of, we're not going to participate in this anymore. But in a thumbnail, I hope that thumbnail is helpful, but in a thumbnail, what it really says, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is telling his disciples to be concerned about the needs of the people, that when you pray, they're asking him, and I should have said that at the beginning, they're asking Jesus not what to pray for. I mean, not not how to pray, because Jews knew how to pray, but what should be their spiritual concerns? What should be con the concerns of their ministry, their discipleship? And he's telling them, be concerned about the political situation of the people, the economic situation of the people, and also your own role in a perpetuation of this system. This is radical. It's anti-imperial and that it's against the Roman Empire. But the power of it is such that imagine if everybody understood the power of the Lord's Prayer, what it could do. I mean, this prayer that we pray all the time, which essentially says, Lord, please guide us to be part of the kind of change that you want in this world in which we treat people's needs as holy. And uh, that's a whole nother orientation then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, let's get to let's get to dinner now. Okay, you know, it's 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 just rote now and nobody really pay, knows what it's really about. This is the kind of responsibility that we scholars have, I think, for really explaining the depth of these very important symbols. And the other thing that's important is that the Lord's Prayer is so very basic that when you show people that their understanding of it is of something so basic to Christianity. It's so wrong that opens them up to say, well, wow, well, maybe there's more, uh, maybe there are other things that we got wrong. So that's why the Lord's Prayer, I think, is so very important in, in that way, as well as in, in the spirituality. There are a couple of things, Obrey, that I talk a little bit about what's, what's on my own heart in this moment. I always think about Black people, Black uh, as being hopeful, future hope. The level of fatalism that I hear with young people today actually has me worried. Cornell talks a little bit about it in his book on democracy when he talks about the nihilism that moving through society and we're seeing so much of uh, now. I guess I'm wondering what is the way we might begin to start destabilizing Christian nationalism, because it's doing such a good job of destabilizing the notion of the common good, our communal relationship with each other, the very idea of democracy. What What is the role that faith, and in particular, you know, I want to circle back to Black faith, you know, the ways in which Black people have historically grounded their struggle 
in faith. And as a result of that, opened up this idea of democracy to so many other people. Let's get out of the practical and just hear some of your musings. Well, for one thing, we have to embrace the fact that this is a very dangerous moment. And so it calls for real serious sacrifice and action. And so I'm informed by Jesus' cleansing of the temple, so-called cleansing of the temple. Martin Luther King said he was tired of just working around the edges, a little change here and there. He wanted to get get to the meat of it. Well, I think that we have to do that in the Black church. And, and, and so we have to really push back on some of these real backward narratives. We're going to have to start, we're going to have to start calling stupidity out. It's that simple. And we have to write about it in a way that's accessible, but we, we have to speak about it and preach about it too. And so, you know, when I'm invited to speak to groups of ministers, I don't insult them or anything, but I come out and hit them hard. They have to know. They have to hear. We have to do that. We have to fight hard. And sometimes, like we used, we did in the Black Nationalist Movement, sometimes we'd go into churches and say, whoa, man, this, you know, this is kind of revolutionary. And that's, that's really problematic because folk will, you know, folk will be very upset about that. But I'm suggesting that we have to do it on all levels. And the the most radical thing is disruption. And hopefully it will, will not come to that. But what I'd like to see as part of that, study groups, institutes come together to start really having radical Bible study. In the AME church, uh, Teresa Fry Brown at the uh, holds a chair in Emory is really, as an officer of the church, he's really working hard to try to do that. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the Hampton Ministers Association and the National Baptists and all that, you know, have some real progressive stuff and start downplaying the importance of preaching performance. That really needs, I think, to be interrogated because it comes down to, you know, it's like James Brown did it better, man. I mean, you know, stop trying to do that. So I'd like to try, would love to see an emphasis on that. And maybe even the Johannine model in which we don't have an imperial pastor, but like in some religions, we have a group of elders, you know, who, who share preaching and who make joint decisions. Ultimately, I'd like to see the black church as a kind of liberationist church that it claims to be that fully accepts the full humanity of women that is concerned with the political economy and how to change it and sees it as more important to stand up against manifest evil than to have some kind of apocalyptic leave it to Jesus type theology or to hunker down in um, bastions of uh, entertainment. In other words, I'd like to see a, a church that's really radical and relevant and trying to be a beacon in society, not dominate it, but to be a beacon of justice and love. Lastly, I'd like to see the two words justice and love treated as important because particularly on the religious right, they don't talk about justice at all, except like Richard Pryor said, just us. And love is something that just isn't isn't talked about. Um, I'd like to see those being the central commitments of our religion because the Hebrew Bible, I mean, the most often used ethical term of the whole Bible is justice. So there's nothing new that we'd, we'd be doing. We'd really be embracing the ethical foundation of the Bible. That is what my prayer is, and that's what I'm using, whatever efforts I have. Do you think we can actually get to an inclusive, multiracial democracy without 
us embracing justice and love and the utilization of faith as a pathway towards reclaiming those frames? I think if we see ethics as primary, justice and love and doing right in the public square, being honest, and move away from doctrines and confessions, I think we might have a chance. The problem is that religion is ultimately so divisive. I think it's a good thing that young people are having questions about the church and even moving away from the church because they're not just moving out into space. They're trying to grapple with some real stuff and they're leaving the church because churches aren't grappling with it. And I think it's a good thing that we're seeing that each generation is more open talking about socialism, which in the final analysis is really just about the common good, focusing on the common good rather than on the selfish individualism. So I think that if we do those things, which is a revolution of values, like King said, we have a chance. But but with the Afro-pessimists, I'm not an Afro-pessimist, but white supremacy has always been so shot through America, American society, even in the you know Constitution and all that. I think we're going to always have this fight. And let's look at how long Hitlerism has continued to have life. I think that Trump, Trumpism Will, too, because he's very successfully appealed to the worst angels of society. And I don't think they're going anywhere. I think we're always going to have this fight, but hopefully there'll be more of us on the side of justice and righteousness than on the side of, of hate masquerading as Christianity. And that's my hope. I mean, I have to, because if not, what will I do? I don't know anything else but the struggle, you know, and to believe in the struggle. That was a great closing. It's so good to talk to you. It's always very uh, thought-provoking. Your unsung brilliance, the only one unsings it is you, is always inspiring. It really is, always. Thank you, Dr. Hendricks, and thank you all for joining Momentum, a Race Ward podcast. We hope that you visit us on social media at Race Forward on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And we hope that you love this so much that you'll go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and rate and subscribe to our podcast. You can also support us by texting RFPOD to 44321. Thank you again, and we look forward to being with you on our next podcast.